0: I've had some crazy dreams in my time, but not like one that we're about to read about today. Um, sometimes I've noticed a correlation between the uh, dreams that I have and the shows I'm watching beforehand. You know, if it's kind of like, like uh, if there's a battle, you know, then sometimes there's a battle in my dream. But this dream today that um, King Nebuchadnezzar has and then asks for the interpretation is just... Out there it's really kind of crazy, but I would like to remind us, as we're kind of going into this passage, that uh, we need to see what the big picture of the dream is, in a sense, and not get caught up on all the little particular questions that we might have about the dream itself and all the details. And I think we can find some answers for some of those details, but others, you just kind of have to say, well. I've got some opinions on what these things are, but uh, I'm not going to go to the wall for some of those opinions, okay? So anyway, let's pray to God here this morning and ask for his help as we dive into this passage here in chapter 2. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your word is just, uh, it is a, um, a light into our path. And your word gives us guidance. And I love that analogy there in the psalm that, you know, it, it's, it's a light to our path. It's like you, 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 you take that next step that you show us, and then you light up the next step. Lord, just help us to follow you. I pray, God, that uh, you would um, comfort the people of our church, our family members. Who are struggling? Our friends, family, and church members who are ill, who are who are battling disease. Lord, we we're talking about kingdoms today. Lord, we ask that your kingdom, uh, the ultimate full experience of your kingdom, where there's no disease and no crying, no sadness. Lord, I pray for those people who need your healing, Lord, in our church family. We just pray that that future kingdom experience would be breaking into the now and you would touch their bodies and you would heal them. Lord, we pray also, Lord, for people in our, in our family, our church family, who are struggling spiritually for various reasons. Lord, strengthen their faith. Might we be an encouragement to one another, and uh, as we are called upon in a number of passages that mention those phrases, one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, admonish one another. And, uh, Lord, we, we want to be faithful to, to be your instruments to minister to your body, the church. Lord, help us to faithfully do that. And, Lord, I just pray that this morning in our time in the Word that you would grab hold of our hearts, and that's what you need. You don't just need our mind, which you need our mind, but you need our heart. And I pray, God, that we would purpose to do your will, whatever the cost. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So I have mentioned to you that here we are in Daniel, and this is our second week there. The first week we saw what was happening, and... uh, with with God's people, God was allowing and, and moving through uh, an evil empire, really, the Babylonian Empire, and through King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the, the king there of Babylon. And God was exiling some of his people. They were under his discipline. This is why this was happening, one of the reasons it was happening. And so we find Daniel and his three companions right there in Babylon, away from home, their worship center, far away. All the people that they were familiar with, not there. And uh, yet they were experiencing the goodness of God right there in the middle of all this chaos and this situation that they found themselves in. And so it's a great encouragement to us to know uh, the, the overall message of this book. We have to keep this kind of in our Uh, in our rearview mirror as we continue on ahead in the book. And the message of the book really as a whole is contrary to appearances, God is in control, and he calls his people to live faithfully where he's put them. And that's the challenge before us, isn't it? Wherever God has put us here in this time and in this place is to be faithful to him. And so we will, uh, and we can have great confidence that God is in control, and he is now as he was in Daniel's time. So, I want to take a look first at the dream itself. So, we're going to look ahead in chapter 2, and then we'll come back to some previous verses. So, let's take a look here in chapter 2 and verses 31 to 35, where we will peek in at the dream. All right, so this is Daniel speaking here in this particular section, and he's telling the king's dream, what, what the king's dream was. Uh, Daniel says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, A stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Verse 35, then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Well, quite a dream, isn't that? (laughs) He has a dream of this statue, if you will, this image that, you know, at the head has a certain uh, makeup of gold and then on down, silver and bronze and and all that. And so that is the dream he has. And it says, uh, Daniel says, its appearance was frightening. To the king. Now, go to chapter 2, verse 1. And it says, In the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. He was losing sleep over these dreams. Uh, and as we will see, God was speaking to him this way, though he could not understand what it was on his own. All right? Um, and, and so it's a very troubling uh, dream. And that's why we're titling this message, The Troubling Dream, as it was uh, a little frightening. And I, th- I think it's interesting that King Nebuchadnezzar would be frightened of anything because he's so darn proud. <laughs> he is, he's like the, the most, and in one sense, really, of the day, the most powerful man. Uh, had armies at his disposal, his kingdom was expanding. I mean, this had everything going for him, uh, yet he was—he was frightened. And you'll see how just how frightened he was here as we take a look at his call for the interpretation. And not only is he going to ask for the dream to be interpreted, he's going to say, "You tell me my dream." <laughs> I mean. This is crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing to somebody tell you your dream and you kind of make up something or try to figure out what it is, right? But it's an whole nother level for somebody to say, I'm not going to tell you my dream, but you tell me it and the interpretation. And this is basically what's going on as we look in verses three to seven, where uh, we see, it says, and the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then it says, the Chaldeans said, now, what what does this mean? So just a few verses earlier, the king calls for these wise men to come, right? And uh, the Chaldeans, right, were among them there. And so he says, uh, this is why it says, then the Chaldeans uh, said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its, and its interpretation. On one side, you've got great reward, right? Hey, tell me the dream and its interpretation, you know. You're going, have the, you're going to have the life of your dreams. Door number two, we're going to tear you to pieces. You know, I mean, just, I think everybody's going to go for door number one, right? At least try, right? And so this is, but again, I'm just kind of pointing out that he's so troubled. He's so anxious that he is laying down this gauntlet, if you will. All these uh, guys that he's trained and gone through this three-year school He's just going to be off with their heads if they can't tell me. And so, what was the reply of the Chaldeans? And we'll learn, it seems to be that Daniel, as far as we could tell, my take is Daniel and his friends were not in the hearing of this initial encounter with the king. And so, um, so, in verse 10, it says, The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And this is interesting to pick up on. It's an obvious response. I think any one of us would say, you're crazy. Nobody can do this, right? I mean, uh, and he's saying uh, the only people that can do this or the only beings can do this are gods and they're not living with us. You know, and so, uh, but I just think the, the writer here is, is just pointing out the fact that this is an impossible scenario for man, okay? And, and so, this is what the Chaldean's response was, and then in verses 12 and 13, uh, we see what the king has to say about that, and he says, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Uh, And so, you see, so he's so furious in the response, basically saying this is an impossible task, uh, that he just said, okay, that's it. We're all going to be killed. You're going to be killed, All all of you. And so then it says in verse 14, then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion, which really brings us to the next part where we see when Daniel gets word about this uh, in his response. His response was really just incredible. It was calm. I mean, uh, you know, we get no indication that there was a freak out moment uh, on Daniel's part when he's going to realize they, you know, he's, they're being asked something that's impossible for a man. And if they can't do it, you know, if they're going to do it, you know, it's, it's off with their heads. And, of course, now it's come down to off with your heads. And so what does Daniel do? So it says, Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to, to Ariok, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he declared to Ariok, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. This is why I think Daniel and those guys weren't there in the hearing initially. Um, And so verse 16, uh, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. If we're going in sequence here, it seems to me like this is a total step of faith. (laughs) Hey, uh, put me on the calendar, king. I'm going to tell you what this is all about, okay? Because we haven't even gotten to God giving him the answer here and what the dream is and all that. But he's like, get me on the calendar. And again, I just see a faith-filled response that God's in control here. And, uh, and, and then, though, it says in verse um, 17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them, listen, he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning the mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And so what does he do? He prays. He says, guys, we need to go to God. We need to ask him to save us and to give us this dream. Tell us what the dream is and tell us the interpretation. Um, and I just love it because he, you faced with an impossible human task. He knows, but God's, in the, God's involved in the impossible, Right? He's saying, God can do this, you know, if he chooses. And so, we need to seek God. And shouldn't that be our response? Shouldn't be that the way that be... And again, it's his kind of first reaction. It's not like, well, and all else fail, he prayed. He was like, we're going to pray. And uh, it's just a... Uh, I mean, we'll see, this ha- we'll see this happen in Daniel's life time and time again throughout the book. But he's a man of prayer. And he's a great example to us in seeking God... And knowing that he's able to do abundantly beyond all that we ask or, interestingly enough, even dream of, okay, and he's able to do beyond that. Uh, and so that's the God that we serve. And, and here in, the chap, in chapter 2, Daniel identifies him as the God of heaven, right, our God, the God of heaven. And so, um, and so this, this edict is out, and Daniel is just saying, let's seek the Lord. Let's seek the Lord. Um, It's interesting just to note the contrast here a little bit. Daniel's response to, we're coming to kill you because of this, and the king's response to just the dream of of anxiety and really fear. And uh, I I, I wanted to share with you um, a quote uh, of Augustine's And he said that the human heart is restless until it finds its rest in God. And I think what we see, Nebuchadnezzar obviously did not have a relationship with the living God, the God of heaven. And it was showing, in a sense, in his response. He was basically, you know, um, if your worldview is just, this is all there is, and, uh, and I have to try to maintain my control, and I and I'm just going to scramble to try to keep it. And that's what you have, is you have a maniacal man, a maniacal king, trying to maintain control. And he felt, I think, in his spirit that, that this dream somehow had to do with his reign, and, and he might lose control, and, and there goes his power, and, you know, and all of this. And so that is, in one sense, a, a kind of, I'm not saying the off of their heads is a normal a normal uh, thing that you do, but, but just the idea of wanting to kind of try to scramble to keep it all in control. But, uh, but if we know God, uh, we have a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ, then what we could do is say, as Daniel did, he can go to him and just say, Lord, give me wisdom. And that's exactly what they prayed, prayed for wisdom and insight into this dream and into its interpretation. And this is what happened, as we see in verse 19 of of Daniel chapter 2. It says, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And I just wonder, we don't know for sure, I just wonder if he went to sleep knowing that God was in control. I don't know that, I I don't know, but it was in the night and it just makes you wonder that if he just had the peace of God that... Regardless of what the outcome was going to be, regardless of the particular, um, what God was going to do with the answering about the dream, he just was able to, I think, just trust and rest. But the God of heaven uh, revealed the mystery to him. And look at his response. Look at his response. In verse 20, was praise. He responds with praise. So, look, he gets this edict that he's going to be killed, His response is one of calm and composure and say, well, wait a minute. Let's put it in the king's calendar. Get us on the schedule. We'll tell him the dream and the interpretation. Praise to God and God answers. And here is his praise. Listen, it's in verse 20 of Daniel chapter 2. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and, now, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. He's praising God for the answer prayer. Shouldn't that be our response, right? We pray, we see God's blessing, and we praise. That's what it should be. We should be people of prayer and praise, no question about it. That's what what should mark us of all the things. Those are components of worship, in a sense, prayer and praise. And Daniel's praising God. You're the God of wisdom. You've revealed this to me, God. You answered my prayer. Praise you, right? And I um, just encourage you this morning that if it's wisdom that you need, if, it's, if you're seeking God's guidance and wisdom, pray to Him, ask Him for guidance. When, you, when we see uh, what God says to us in the book of James there, just uh, hold your place there and just quickly take a look at James chapter 1. Of course, in James chapter 1, at the very beginning, he talks about trials and seeing how with, by faith, we can see that God uses trials to um, bring our faith to uh, um, maturity, if you will. And then he says in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him think it through. Your Bible did not say that. My Bible doesn't say that either. It didn't say think it through. Let him Google the answer. No, doesn't say that here. Um, it says, "Let him ask of God. Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him." Now, does God use our own faculties to inform our decisions? Yes. Does he? Can we use the internet to help inform us? Yes. Okay. But are you praying? and asking God to take the knowledge that you gather and apply it because that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is applied knowledge, right? Some of the smartest people are 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 just totally impractical in regular life. Don't have common sense, as they say. Okay? And so you have to realize that, again, wisdom is knowledge applied. We get God's wisdom, or we get God's knowledge here, and wisdom is here too, but how to apply that in our situation needs to come from God guiding us and leading us through the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit, and through also from one another, getting counsel from one another. Right? How many decisions have you made on your own and uh, regretted it later, you know, because... And thinking that, man, I wish I had asked about this, asked input from somebody on this. I wish I had really sought the Lord on this, but I just went ahead and did it. Didn't even pray about it. And so we need to remember, right, that God, He gives generously, it says, His wisdom to those who ask. We need to ask unwaveringly, knowing that He he does give generously. He's He's not wanting us to, you know, not waiting for us to, you know, you know got to turn around three times, stand on your head, you know, do tricks for him before he's going to give us wisdom. No, generously it says he gives in James. Generously he gives. We just need to ask. We need to seek. And we need to say, Lord, guide me here. Give me wisdom. We may not be asking for interpretations of dreams or anything like that, but I'm just taking, talking about your daily life. In your relationships, in your finances, right? Uh, In your work life, how you do your job. The Word of God has a lot to say. And God can give us wisdom. But we need to ask. That's it. Doesn't it also say there, you have not because you ask not, right? There's the there's the urging to pray. Daniel's such a great example. So now we have the interpretation of the dream, All right? The interpretation of the dream, verses uh, thirty-six to forty-five. Let me read those. And we already read what the dream was. Now we're now we're looking for to get insight into the interpretation. So here we go. This is Daniel. Um, let me mention though what he, what Daniel says. When he comes into the presence of the king. Before we get to verse thirty-six, take a look at verse twenty-seven of Daniel chapter two. So he's he's now at his appointment with the king, and it says, Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. Verse 28 But there is a God in heaven. And this is, I really think, the linchpin of the whole chapter. But there is a God in heaven. Now, he doesn't lay it all out like this, but I think behind this, and we'll see this as we go along in the coming chapters, and Nebuchadnezzar, you're not him. You're not him. You're not God, Nebuchadnezzar. You think you are, in a sense, God. You think you're in control, but you're not. And so Daniel, and it's wonderful here because he, he, he's taking opportunity to, to pray, to give God the credit here, okay? He's saying, listen, God did this. What man can't do, and you, you know, let's face it, Nebuchadnezzar, you gave an impossible task to a man to do. And so what he's saying there, as he goes on, he says, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in the bed are these. And then he goes on, he says, To you, O king, as you lay in the bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. And so, in other words, hey, this dream is about what's to come. It's a future thing. And then he goes on and he says, It says, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than, than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Again, he's not taking credit. He's saying, I'm not anybody special in this way, but God, the God of heaven, He's done this. All right, so here we go on to verse 36. Let's see what, the, let's see what this dream means. All right, verse 36, this was the dream. Now, We will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven, there we go again, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Again, he is just, he's constantly reminding in so many ways to Daniel and those in the hearing of this, you're here, King Nebuchadnezzar, because God has you here. You, king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Okay, so we can say with confidence this dream, this this image, the statue, if you will, in the dream, the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar and broadly the the empire of Babylon. The Babylonian empire is represented by that gold head. Okay, so we don't have to guess on this, we don't have to speculate. It's spelled out for us, okay? Um, So what I'm going to say is I think we can know this one for sure, and I think we can know what the stone is for sure that becomes the mountain. Everything else in between is kind of speculation. Lot's been written on it. A lot of people have said, hey, I think one of those kingdoms is probably, you know, after the Babylonian kingdom, is like the Medo-Persian kingdom, and then the Greeks, with Alexander the Great, and then the Roman Empire. It could possibly be. But, you know, I'm not going to go to the wall for that, okay? Um, We can speculate, pontificate, come up with reasons, what the toes mean, all this stuff. But we need to focus in on what we can know and the overall purpose of the dream, okay? We can get hung up again on the forest for the tree. So let's keep going here. Uh, so we know what the head of gold is. Verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze. So again, each of those metals, as we go down this, this, this uh, image, right, is, is a kingdom. Each one, uh, at least, seems to be inferior to that of the Babylonian. It says, and a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth, And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. It continues, verse 41, as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. So we do get some insight as to like what's what's the idea of this mixture? Well, it's a divided kingdom. So we get little bits of like. Characteristics of these kingdoms, but we don 't get any surefire definition except for the first kingdom and then we 'll see what is the stone that becomes a mountain all right and so it says and verse forty two and as, as the toes of the feet were partly iron, partly clay, so the kingdom should be partly strong and partly brittle, and as you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay, and in the days now, here we go. So now we're getting down, now we're going to get to talk about the stone. And if you remember that, that stone that was made by no man that came, came up and wiped out the entire statue. And not only that, it's like it said it blew, the, it's almost like I get this image of like, you know, you know, Steven Spielberg movie, comes this rock, you know, dust, all blown away like it was never there. That kind of thing and this is what this is the stone, verse 44 and in those in the days of those kings the god of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever just as you saw that a stone was cut from a from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The, the dream is certain and its interpretation sure. So there we have it. This stone. This stone is really that becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth is really the kingdom of God. Really the kingdom of God. And what I'd like to point out is the fact that we'll look at a couple of verses here, real quick, in the one of the Gospels and one in Acts, that talks about Jesus being the King of a kingdom that will never end. Right? Because doesn't it say that this 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 God of Heaven establishing a kingdom that will never end? Right. So let's take a look in Luke chapter one, verse thirty-two. Luke chapter 1, verse 32. And we're popping in here on a little conversation that the angel Gabriel is having with Mary, the, the Virgin Mary, and she's getting news that, you know, she's pregnant, you know, and, uh, which was a great surprise, right? And so here's what he says about this child, right? It, it says in verse 31, we might as well go back there. It says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, We're talking about Jesus. Verse 32, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so this stone which becomes a mountain, the kingdom of God is connected to Jesus. Do you remember what some of the things that Jesus said when he was walking here around the earth, you know, when John, John the Baptist comes on the scene, right? Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting excited. Sorry. Uh, we'll get there. Let me go to that Acts verse I was telling you about because I want to talk about the, 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 the stone here. Acts chapter 4, verse 11. Acts chapter 4, verse 11. If you look at the headings, if you have headings, your Bible says Peter and John called before the council. Right, they're getting all kinds of trouble for preaching the gospel, right? And so, so here's what happens there in Acts chapter four, verse eleven. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. He's talking to the religious leaders, right? The council. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has come. Become the cornerstone, right? And there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name among under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so here we have Jesus, you know, talked in many different places in the Bible, as the stone, the cornerstone, which in these religious leaders rejected him. Right? They rejected him. And so Jesus, in a sense, is the stone, the kingdom of God. And he ushers it in in a a particular way when he comes the first time, when he comes the first time. This is where I was starting to get ahead of myself, that Jesus ushers in the kingdom here. And let me just make mention of this here before we get to these three things I want to end with here. But the big idea here in Daniel chapter 2 is that earthly kingdoms will come and go. Earthly kingdoms, power, you know, kingdoms... Uh, leaders, presidents, they all come, they all go. They're nobody compared to God. The kingdom of God will last forever. And to me, if I was one of these believers in exile, that should be such a word of encouragement to me because here I am in kind of an outpost (laughs) here I'm trying to live for God in a less than ideal environment that's becoming increasingly more hostile to my faith there, in his case, in Babylon. And uh, yes, this is a word of God to Nebuchadnezzar, but I think it would be a word of encouragement to Daniel to know God is still large and in charge. And to us, we need to remember that, right? In our lives, right here, right now, We need to seek God. We need to see that He's the one that we need to love a life that's pleasing to. He's the one that we'll have to give an account to. And we need to live our lives in light of that. His kingdom is the only one that matters. The kingdom of God, in a sense, is the rule and the reign of God. It's happening now in the lives of believers all over the world. And so, when we look in the Scriptures, and I just want to point out these three things, really, when we talk about um, the kingdom of God in just a very kind of general way in the New Testament. You know, it's interesting that In, you know, Jesus mentions again the inauguration of the kingdom of God when he's here. Take a look in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. It says, Now after John was arrested, that's John the Baptist. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Verse 15, and saying, listen to what he says as he's proclaiming it. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, it's near, it's here. What is he meaning by that? Well, he's here. He was here, right? He's saying the kingdom of God is here. He's the king. And wherever the king goes, there goes his kingdom. All right? And so in a unique way, When Jesus walked this earth and he was crucified and resurrected, the kingdom of God came to be present in a way it had not been before. And Jesus was declaring it. And as this kingdom was going forth, we see other places where the kingdom of God is handed. People are healed. People are delivered. And those are other things that happen when the kingdom of God is on the move and and expanding and things like that. And so I just want you to realize that, you know, that stone that turned into that mountain and filled the whole earth, that's the kingdom of God. And Jesus ushered it in in a unique way when he was here the first time. And now, as you, if you look in Matthew chapter 13, you'll see a whole series of what they call the kingdom parables, the kingdom parables. And one of those parables talks about, in a sense, what's happening now. And uh, if we take a look here, it's in, it's in uh, Matthew, excuse me, yeah, Matthew chapter 13. It's the parable of the mustard seed in verses 31 and 32. This is Matthew 13, 31 and 32, the parable of the mustard seed. It's, uh, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in the field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs, it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And it goes on, and there's a lot more to this, but just to say, you know, the kingdom of God is advancing right now through the proclamation of the gospel. And where his people go, his presence goes with them. And as they proclaim and once receive the message of the gospel, the kingdom grows, And what's fascinating is that it's kind of like mostly below the radar, (laughs) right? This little teeny seed, you get this image of this little teeny seed, and then all of a sudden, whew, it's this big shrub, this big tree, right? Well, in Jesus' time, the disciples and others were expecting the kingdom of God to come in force, literally in force, and dethrone the Roman Empire, right? And, and they, they really were, in a sense, wanting Jesus, you know, when are we going to set up the kingdom? When are, when are you going to kick butt and take names, Jesus, so we can get your, this, the, the kingdom of heaven established here on earth? And what they didn't realize is this is not the time for this, okay? The time now is for the king to come as a servant, a suffering servant, that we might enter into the kingdom of God, right? And so, uh, but but I, I just—it's it, just fascinating that we see this. The kingdom of God is growing all throughout the world, right? Believers, whether above ground or so to speak underground, people coming to faith. This is the kingdom of God. This is that those mustard seeds growing into a bush and a shrub and a tree, and eventually will fully blossom when the Lord comes back. When he comes back, and we have another parable that mentions, that gives us insight in the fact that there is a future time when Jesus Christ is going to return and set up his kingdom, physically. Okay? And uh, I'm not going to read it right now, but let me get you uh, the, the reference here. I think it's, hang on here, I've got it down here. Oh, here we go. Yeah, Luke chapter nineteen, the uh, parable of the talents. Right, there was a kingdom, and he gave out these talents. And the king goes away, then he's going to come back. Right, that's that's what's going to happen. Right, the king is coming back. Jesus is coming back, and we are in this in between time where we're supposed to proclaim the gospel, be involved in kingdom work. Right. Doesn't it say, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness? That's supposed to be our first priority as believers. Is it? That's a question only you and God can answer for you. Is the kingdom work of God? Is Christ your first priority? How would you know that? People usually say, and I'm not saying this because of the finance thing. They say your calendar and your checkbook. I, it just still happened to happen today. Okay. All right, your calendar, your checkbook, your time and your money, because those are things that we value and are, in a sense, a commodity to us. Do I spend time with Jesus? Is it prioritized? Am I seeking first the kingdom? And let me tell you this: If you know something that God is calling you to do, something He's commanded you in Scripture, and you're not doing it, Jesus is not first. He's not first. He's something else. He's somewhere else in us, but he's not first. And we have to take that seriously. We again, it's not. I'm not. I'm not saying it's a performance based walk with Jesus, but He calls us to obey Him, doesn't He? How many times do you read in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where Jesus says, da-da-da-da-da, cannot be my disciple unless, boom, and then he lays it on him. But Jesus, I got to go bury my father. No, you follow me. Man, that's a harsh word, isn't it? He says, you better hate your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, your child, compared to me. That's commitment. And we, I think, we, America, made to say, when it comes to the church, we have wussy Christianity. We are not living first century Christianity. We are living lazy lives. Comfort and ease. No sacrifice. Okay, those are broad statements, and those are hard. But I think we need to hear it. All of us need to be challenged, myself included. I read a, a little bit of a book this week that just about laid me and filleted me right out. And that happens there periodically. And I'm like, oh man, it was a, it was a challenge. What I was reading was a challenge. And I just and I'm and I, I'm still thinking about some of the things that were coming up in my mind about the challenge. But just, but just say, you know, am I serious? Or am I just gliding along? Is my faith in Jesus real? And if it's real, it involves obedience. And let me tell you this, obedience will cost you. It will. And so I'm just going to challenge you again. If there is something you know the Lord wants you to do and you're not doing it, you're in sin. And you need to repent of that and do it. You'll be blessed if you do. You'll be blessed if you do. Right? You just, I mean, just you know that uh, when in my prayer earlier, just you know, thy word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Right? You know what God wants you to do. You step out there and you do it. You obey, and you watch Him bless, and you watch Him throw light on the next step. Okay. So we got to do it. We got to do it. That wasn't in the first service, but uh, God, that's why God's just, that's the great thing about two services, you just never know what's going to happen, all right? Okay, but I think that he's coming back. What the heck are you doing? We need to think about His kingdom. His kingdom is the only thing that matters. Seek first His kingdom. Seek. Daniel 2 is all about these kingdoms are coming and going. The kingdom of God is the only thing that matters and that should be your first priority. Let's pray for God's mercy and help, okay? Heavenly Father, we come to You. Let the reality of of the kingdom of God show in our lives. Lord forgive us of the times when we have not when we have failed to to obey. And yes, that's why we need a savior, but that's not an excuse. It does not excuse us to say, well, then I can just let it keep sliding. And God doesn't care. That that is a lie. Lord, help us to to faithfully follow you like Daniel and his friends. Prayer and praise were the prayer of their lives. The God of heaven is the one that they sought. He's the one that they sought to please. He's the one that they wanted to do what he said. Come hell or high water, so to speak. Father, give us boldness. Help us to be a witness to a world around us that has no moorings whatsoever spiritually. People are doing what is right in their own eyes and that will get you killed and condemned. For the Proverbs say, a man you know, we, we see, we, we do what seems right to us, but it's the way is the end of death. People need Jesus Christ. We need Jesus Christ. And if we know Him, we need Him every day. In a sense, He is our food. <laughs> he is our drink. We just sang a song about drinking of the water of life. Lord Jesus, help us to be found faithful when you come to set up your kingdom. Give us strength, Lord. Again, thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And thank you that you bid anyone come to you and you just simply say, you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. That's a gospel and a microcosm. Lord, give us your grace. Thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.